0: Hey, before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to thank Jeremy. After editing all of the episode, I realized now that we really dove deep into his experience, both as a designer and as a photographer. So much so that I had to break this episode into two parts because I thought there was so much to learn from Jeremy, and I was really excited at the time to ask him all of my questions. So with that, enjoy the first part of my conversation with Jeremy Perez-Cruz. How do we make the world
1: smaller through technology and a lot of that was effort on my end, having to work like 12 hours a day. But for me, that, that was worth the investment in order to you know, create a path forward to all of these like, younger, talented, amazing individuals to like, be able to like, continue to grow and learn and advance within the company. And if they had to leave, like find a really great job and help them find a job that they could be really proud to work on.
0: On this episode of Well-Fed, my guest is Jeremy Perez-Cruz. He is the director of Brand at BuzzFeed. And also, Jeremy has worked with a bunch of global brands in his his experience, uh, including Uber and Pepsi, and was also one of the founders of the branding studio at Etsy. Jeremy is also the creator of the Instagram hashtag and community Street Weekly, where he curates not only his own photos, but photos from photographers all over the world. So Jeremy, thank you for joining me today.
1: Yeah, man. Thanks for the
0: invite. Really excited because um, when I first came in contact with your work, it was on Instagram, and I thought you were just like this freelance photographer just going all over the place. But sort of. yeah, <laughs> um, because all of your your Instagram is the photos that you take every day. Yep. But you're also like a kick-ass designer, kick-ass director, which I was like really surprised about. And you know, i I kind of was keyed up to you through a friend that you used to work with at Etsy. So you have such a design background, such a seasoned background, and you've worked with some of the most influential brands. So I'd like to kind of start with that. You, so you went to Valencia College in Florida. Yeah. Is that where you grew up?
1: Yeah, for the most part, um, I'm a first generation American. Uh, My mother's British, my father's Mexican, um, and they met, it's a whole nother podcast, but they met in the Bahamas, and uh, I was born in the Bahamas, and so, We bounced around a little bit, um, moved back to Australia, which all my mother's family migrated to Australia at some point from England. Um, Lived in Australia for a little bit, lived in the Bahamas, kind of bounced around. Um, But yeah, for my formative years, like mostly in Florida, so Mm -hmm. in Miami, and then uh, Cocoa Beach for high school, and then I went to college in Orlando.
0: Were you, um, I guess, you know, going through school, were you like into art, into painting, into anything like that, did you kind of just fall into uh, wanting to know more about design at some point?
1: Yeah, it's, my whole career is like a very non-traditional path to design. I think uh, the the thing that sort of sparks it all is my dad was a commercial artist. Like, he went to Carnegie Mellon. Um, He was originally going for architecture. Um and I think there was too much math involved in that and um he focused more on like fine art and
0: commercial art. I said the same exact thing. It's too much math. <laughs> yeah, too much math. <laughs> Get rid of that.
1: Uh Yeah, and he um he's sort of like a jack of all trades and he was in the military for years like decorated like veteran um and then based on some like uh injuries both like through the military and through other things he ended up in the Bahamas um because like his doctor recommended that he swim more and that it would be better. <laughs> Sounds for like his. a
0: good, yeah. good diagnosis.
1: It's like better for his knees and for his back, and it would like help those things. And so he moved to the Bahamas and he started a tourism magazine, and he used I think his skills that he learned in college through. Um, going to like commercial art school to like lay out and produce this magazine it was called what's what and where I don't know if it still exists
0: that sounds like a pretty cool name yeah
1: and um he uh he was doing treasure hunting with Mel Fisher and so he was doing like scuba diving and finding like sunken ships and pulling out like gold doubloons and gold bars (laughs) and stuff and that's sort of the thing that oh like I can tell people about like all this stuff around the Bahamas and Mm -hmm. so he you know, he. I think he hired some writers. I don't know all the details because this was like before I was born. Sure. But Yeah, he and my mom. Like, he still underneath the bed. I remember as a kid had like color separations for the magazine, like on film. And I remember being fascinated by it. And that's sort of like what started me down the like design path, is my dad did that magazine. And then he he mostly worked as like a caricature artist at sure. like tourism towns. So like we lived in the Bahamas, and we lived in Miami, and we lived in Cocoa Beach. And at those places he would like go out to popular areas and uh, he would do like photographs of people at the time on Polaroid and make keychains out of them. And he would do like portraits and he would even do sign painting. And as a kid, my mom worked a full-time job and my dad was always this like free spirit. And um, so like when I wasn't at like, I, we didn't, we couldn't afford daycare. Like we were, we were like a fairly low income, like immigrant family. Mm -hmm. And so I just hung out with my dad and, so we would walk around and he would do portraits and sign painting and I would help him and he would show me how to mask off lettering and how to like keep your hand off of the paint with like a stick with a piece of rubber at the yeah. end. And that really got my interest going. And like the first piece of art I sold was in Miami beach. He would give me like business cards. and paint on the back of them with just stuff he had laying around and he would put them up next to his stuff. And that's sort of what like got me interested in art, um, but it wasn't until like many years later that I actually like considered doing it for real. So like, there's always art around. I was always like painting and drawing and making things. But I think in in high school, when I um, I sort of like ignored it for a while, and and later on, I got really into comic books, which is like such a silly thing. So it's, um, it's
0: like a, a a reoccurring introduction to yeah. Uh, it's like comic. I I did. I was like. I went down a path for a little bit of, like, my mom bought me a video, like, a VCR, uh, VHS, like, kind of tape to watch about comic book stuff. And I had, like, a whole kit. And it was just, like, kind of one of the first intros to kind of being an artist and making stuff. It's crazy, right?
1: Um, And so, yeah, like, so I did all this stuff as a kid and then I kind of ignored it. And I started, like, surfing and skateboarding, like, the normal stuff you do. And then, um, yeah, at a certain point, I just, like, discovered comic books and just, through a friend of mine in middle school i guess it was and i was just like oh man this is so great it's like storytelling and and language which i always loved i always loved reading um and then it was just like this beautiful art and so like you know comic book artists like jim lee specifically around x-men and 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 that sort of stuff was just like i was fascinated by it and so then i started like drawing my favorite comic book characters and that's what got me back into art and in high school I started taking like art classes and I was like oh like I can do this thing like I can like see something and like draw it like photocopy it like somehow Mm. and that was sort of the like oh like art is like a thing that's that's important to me which I I don't think there's a period of time that you forget right and particularly in like America it's not like art is like this thing that's championed. I sure. like, yeah, be a lawyer, be a doctor, do this stuff. But yeah. I was just really lucky to have a family that like believed in the arts and my dad was an artist for a living. And, and then comic books were just that thing that like flipped the switch and made me realize that it was like possible to just do things, not just for the joy of doing them, but you could like do them and like share them with other people. Yeah. And that seemed valuable. And then like the big thing was like music. So around the same time, like any adolescent, you get into like rock and roll and like,
0: and I was just Lincoln like in park
1: well, for me, I'm, I'm older. So it was like Pearl Jam was like the big, yeah. the big thing for me and like Nirvana and those like nineties grunge bands. And I started playing like guitar and bass and drums and just like was all in on music and uh, started my own bands. And that's where like it, it moved from like art like drawing yeah. to commercial art where I was like, Oh, like, I guess I have to make a flyer for a band. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know what that meant. I was like, yeah, I'm put the names and the date. And then through that, I started to learn the principles of design. Like, all right, we have to have like a focal point and the information needs to be clear and typography and that sort of stuff. And so it was like flyers and CDs and t-shirts. And that was really the thing that pushed me into like design more as a career than just as like something that I thought was beautiful and worth sharing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Your first design or one of your first design jobs while you were in Florida was at a place called Juicy Temples.
1: Yeah, that was, um, it was actually my third design job. My first, like what I consider real design. Mm -hmm. Um, What were you doing there? uh, So I had um, done a mentorship program through AIGA when I was in college. And my mentor was uh, Klaus, who was the owner of Juicy Temples at the time. And for me, there was like basically two studios in Orlando that were like it. And so there was Lore. Um, which is mm-hmm. like Jeff Matz and Sarah Blackshire and Paul Masiani, And they do amazing work. And then there was Juicy Temples, which was like klaus Hiesch, At the time, Randy Hunt, who I later worked with at Etsy. Mm. Um, Adam Waugh, who I later worked with at PepsiCo. <laughs> but yeah, and like Juicy was just doing this amazing work. And, and I, just, I just, I was like fascinated by it. So I went in and I did this mentorship through AIGA. And um, I got to work on the Audi Art of the Heist campaign, mm-hmm. which was done through Campfire, which was sort of like, they did the Blair Witch Project. Like, yeah, they were like the writers and directors of Blair Witch Project and Mike Manello, who still, re- still works at Campfire lives in New York now. Um, yeah and they used to hire Juicy because they shared an office and they'd be like yeah well, we're doing you know we've, we did this like at the time there wasn't such a thing as viral campaign. Yeah. They're like yeah we did this thing for Blair Witch and did really well so now we're gonna like pivot into doing that for other companies and so like an ad agency without really being an ad agency. And one of the first things was this Audi project where they created an online world and game where you had to solve the puzzle of like, who stole the Audi. (laughs) And our job at Juicy Temples was to make like hundreds of fake websites around this like world that didn't really exist and like pass them off as real websites. No shit. Yeah, and then we had to like do photographs that we would hide on SD cards because the Audi had an SD card slot. And so it's really intricate. Yeah, and so like I worked on that, and I worked on some personal projects, some um, some like album covers, like stuff that I was interested in through music. Um, and then I left, and then I got a job uh, in publishing, doing like fine art publishing, which was fine. It was interesting. I worked in a gallery, and we did limited edition prints, um, and we did like catalogs. And I got to work with Rosoli on a book, and it was it was cool. But then like Klaus from Juicy called, and he's like, "Hey man, we've got like this freelance project. Do you want to help out with it?" And I was like oh my God, this is the only place I've ever wanted to work. Um, and so I was like, well, how much is it paying? And it was like, well, it's like a two month contract. And I was like, well, I'm making like pretty good money in publishing. Like, it wasn't, <laughs> but I was like, well, I'm like, I don't I don't know if I can quit my full-time paying job to like go do a freelance project with you. And he's like, well, I haven't talked to you in like a year. Like come by with your portfolio, let's talk. I'm like, okay. So I like, worked over the weekend, like put together a portfolio. And like, mm-hmm. at the time I was taking my solution was like, all right, I'm gonna make these JPEG files out of my Photoshop and Illustrator files and then go to CVS and print them on photo paper and then yeah. put them into like a, a physical book. portfolio. And like, I mean, I don't know what it looks like today, but I was like, man, that looked really good. <laughs> so it was like photo quality prints direct from the like design files. And I walked in, I was like, hey, classes, he was like, yeah, leave this, leave this with me and I'll get back to you in a day. And so he called me and was like, hey man, yeah, come work full time for me. That's cool. And I ended up taking I think it was like a
0: 40% pay cut to go work at juicy temples. Um, but at that point you kind of like, I guess in your head, right. There's part of it was like, this was the place, you know, you wanted to work and and you love the quality of work. I guess they were producing.
1: Um, and the other thing was like, and this is like a reoccurring theme is sort of like doing something that I don't know how to do. Mm -hmm. And then like betting on myself in some way, like, all right, well I'll take this risk. Right. With the understanding that like, this is the potential payoff and I'm willing to like put that on me. And so Juicy was sort of the first exercise in that where it's like, all right, well, I'll take a pay cut, but instead of like laying out gallery guides all day and doing like Giclee prints, like I can like design a film festival mm. brand campaign and I can like work for Audi and do stuff for DreamWorks and like get to work on all these crazy things. And sure, I'm not making as much money, but like what am I getting out of that yeah. that's like worth more than money, right? Sure.
0: Yeah, it's like almost like a, it's very much a reward, right? Like being able to make something and see it through. Yeah. I mean, even in the, like personally doing side projects that don't pay me whatsoever, it's still having complete control over it and thinking about it in a way that you don't do making, you know, in in a regular job sometimes.
1: Yeah, and that's always it. It's sort of, I don't know, like the opportunity for learning is like one of the most valuable things to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly like, it's like, I I talk with friends. I'm like, yeah, I have this like input output sort of like mentality. Like either I'm like putting something into the world that's like contributing somehow positively, like whether that's through my design work through my full time job or photography or whatever, or I'm learning something about the world or myself or a craft. And if I'm not doing one of those two things, I'm like super anxious. Yeah. And I feel really uncomfortable with myself. So Uh, yeah, I always it's like I say yes to a lot of things that I probably shouldn't. Um, but I found that in the long run, it's really like worked out for me in a in a way.
0: You um, you you had a, a few gigs maybe after Juicy Temples, but mm-hmm. eventually two thousand eleven came around, and you decided that you were going to move to New York.
1: Yeah, it was twenty ten like. I had decided I was gonna to move to New York like when I was 16 years
0: old. Okay. Um, Israeli, so it was way before. Way before. You were just right? working up to that point where you yeah. just said fuck it and went for it.
1: And there were so many times over the years where I was like, all right, well I'm like finishing. I, I had applied to um, SVA out of high school. And then I was like, well, you know, I was in a band. And I was like, well, I have the opportunity to like go on tour for like six months. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you know, I can always go to school later. I don't know, you know, at what time am I too old to like go on work tour you know sure, what i yeah. mean yeah <laughs> you um, went on a tour yeah that's it yeah and I so went there
0: when i was younger i went there like uh, twice yeah and so i remember the big show i wanted to go was go see under Earth at the time uh, under oh, Earth. another
1: florida band yeah. tampa <laughs> but yeah man and so like for me it was always like well you know here's an opportunity i don't know how many opportunities like this i'm gonna have but i'm gonna go like play music and do this thing so i was like all right well maybe spending a ton of money to go to like a design school, whether it be SVA or Ringling or,
0: sure. RISD, or whatever, sure. right?
1: Like it's a serious investment. I was like, all right, well, like, I'm going to do this other thing for a bit and see where music takes me. And, you know, the same mentality, like, what can I learn from it? What can I see? What can I do? And it, as someone who like grew up, not quite as privileged, the opportunity for like my travel to be paid, like, you know, to go and tour you know, 48 of the 50 states or go to Europe for six weeks was just like, oh my God, And like, I didn't make any money. I was broke. I
0: would do that for free. Yeah, <laughs> but it was like, oh,
1: but I didn't necessarily lose money. And yeah, yeah exactly. Like, not just see like big cities and tourist spots, but I got to see all these like blue highways of America and these small towns and through that experience, like I made like my best friends in my life to this day through music and I think um, I met up with someone it uh, was just over the Thanksgiving break. We're recording this the week after Thanksgiving. Um, and, yeah, we were just talking. And we're like, man, like, all the stories we have just from, like, those few years of touring, like, will last us a lifetime. Yeah. And you don't get the – I mean, you have your, like – you're on set, like, filming a TV commercial, and it's, like, kind of crazy, and it feels that way. But there's something about being, like, locked in a van, sleeping on floors, traveling across the country with, like, no money and no promise of an audience. That's just, like <laughs> – it's very character-building, and I think – You know, again, like, input-output, I think, like, the learnings I took from that, like, learning how to talk to a crowd and, like, uh, be on a stage and sell things and, like, build relationships and all of that I still use to this very day in, in, you know, my profession that pays me what music never used to pay me.
0: (laughs) That's sick, though. I mean, it's very much like a practice run. Yeah. yeah. Because in a way building merch, selling mer- selling tickets, yeah. it's marketing, yeah. you know, part of it is very much marketing design cent- or design thinking in a way.
1: Yeah, and it, um, and it forced me to design, like yeah. I didn't know what design really was at the time, you know, I had a couple of David Carson books, uh, <laughs> which probably didn't teach me the best way to design, sure. but, um, you know, it's like that blue sky world where like I was my own client and it let me explore ideas that I probably never would have explored if like my first show was at like a Fast Signs or somewhere, sure. you
0: know. What was your band called?
1: Uh, I had a bunch of them.
0: Uh, what was the one that you toured with?
1: A few of them. So uh, I was in a band called Preferred 53, which we were real big time in <laughs> Cocoa Beach, Florida. Um, but yeah, but we had some interest, like Jive Records reached out to us cool. around that time. I think this was like 1999, 98. And they were really interested in moving away from their like boy band stuff into, and they ended up signing like think, like other like rock bands and we just imploded. We like hated each other. For the most <laughs> part. Yeah. I mean, it's like any band. Right. Um, and then out of that, I was in a band called the spit There's like a ska band that did really well. Um, and we toured with like all the other big ska bands and that was the band that I did probably the bulk of my touring with like all over the place. Um, and then later I was in a band called sleeping girl drowning, which was like an emo hardcore sort <laughs> of rock
0: and roll band that, um, it's such a full spectrum of music. It's like right? all over, right? <laughs> Rock, sky. And even stuff. before
1: that, before I decided to do design, uh, I was studying to go to Berkeley College of Music because uh, I was playing jazz and I wanted to do performance bass was sort of the like degree track that I was looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a couple friends who ended up going and they were like, don't go to don't go to Berkeley. It'll like kill your love for music. If you really love this thing, don't do it. And I was, it scared the scared the crap out of me. Yeah. And so I ended up being like, all right, well, I guess I'll just like tour for a bit. And through touring and like designing things that gave me like a love of design. Uh, but to bring that back around again, like I was gonna move to New York out of high school. Sure. And it didn't happen. I had visited New York a couple times with some friends who did a road trip and it just like life changing. Like there was a certain energy and electricity to the city that coming from, you know, small town Florida, um, I had never really experienced. And it was just, um, I had a really great host, um, my friend Mark, uh, show me around. He has a house in Jersey City or Union City. Um, yeah, and it was just like an amazing time. And I think I saw the Sunday Day Real Estate Reunion concert. And I was like, oh, all the bands come to New York. And it was just really special. And so out of high school, I almost went to New York, didn't move to New York. And then I like toured for a while. And it's like, oh, well, I can't move to New York because I got my band in Florida. And then I like was going to college when I was in between tours. And then it's like, oh, well, like I've got this job, so I can't really move now. And then it's like, oh, I have a girlfriend or like whatever it may be. There's always something that I was like, it's not the right time. And mm-hmm. In retrospect, it's a good thing because I think like moving to New York when I was like 17 or 18 and having a, an apartment with like, you know, six roommates or whatever and yeah. making maybe minimum wage, not even a design job. I think it would have drastically changed my interpretation of New York, whereas I moved to New York when I was 29 and it was like, finally like the culmination of like 12 years or whatever of like wanting to do this thing. And it just happened to be the right time. It was like the perfect job with Etsy and the perfect timing. And I didn't make great money, but I made enough money that I could like live in New York comfortably and like really enjoy the city for what it was. And I don't know, it was just like a really special moment that, um, yeah, I think like my first year in New York will be, Everyone has their like golden year sure like yeah. sure it's like cool like the first couple of years of touring in a band was amazing and like man that summer of eighth grade where I had my first kiss or whatever I like that was really cool and, like, and I think like my first like couple of years in New York was just like this life altering like it's like the place I was supposed to be forever and right. I was finally there and it just like feels right
0: so it was that time that you you joined Etsy yeah um and you was it the design team at a very early kind of stage at that point when you joined or you know what was the the status at the time?
1: yeah super early so again like anything it's like a crazy thing so i'd been going up to new york and also chicago my best friend lives in chicago mm-hmm. and um, i met him while touring and he had a band he said oh you should come join my band i was like oh maybe been doing design for a little bit sure. like i was working in advertising which i learned a lot from but i don't think it was like the thing i wanted to do and i was like no oh, maybe i'll just like take a break and do music for a little at. I- I was like, maybe I'll go to culinary school. It was like an idea what? I had for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, eventually I was like, interviewing in New York and I had a couple job offers um, at places that I was excited about. And I was up for a final interview. It was at OKCupid actually at the time. Um, and I went on Twitter and I saw Randy Hunt, who I had worked with at Juicy Temples, tweeted. He's like, hey, looking for like a graphic designer, art director to work a contract to full time at Etsy in New York, like hit me up. And so I was like, Hey Randy, I'm in New York today. Uh, Can I come by? And he was like, well, oh man, my day's packed, but can you come by tomorrow? And so I like paid like 300, $400, which I didn't have to move my flight back a day. Um, Cause I was like, you know, bet on myself. All right, we're going to try this thing. And so I moved my flight back a day. I scheduled an interview at Etsy and it was just like it. And so I went in and I met Randy Hunt and Jay Carlson, and I met um, Camilla at the time. And like I think Jay and Camilla are both at Betterment now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I just met a few people and it, the offices were incredible. And I was an Etsy fan before, but like I didn't understand like, the breadth of things that Etsy did. And it mm-hmm. was just fascinating. And the opportunity was perfect, because it's like, hey, there's no real job description. This job doesn't exist right now the design team is like four or five product designers and like no other designers. And you'd be the first non like digital product designer. Mm -hmm. I'm like, cool. Like sounds, sounds good. And so I talked to a few people. I think we talked about philosophy and like the kind of work that I like doing and what they were up to. And, and I left and I flew home and, um, I kind of held off, I think the other job offers for a week. And I was like, hey, Randy, man, like, I got to like, take one of these. What's going on? And he's like, yeah, we're in. Let's do it. And that that was sort of like the
0: beginning of all of it. I mean, that's pretty cool. But I've heard, so you said that you joined with a team of like four product designers. So yeah. they're working on like the website, website the, app. I guess the mobile app. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were joining as one of the only designers that wasn't in that kind of product Correct. mindset. Was that intimidating? And like, did you have to mm-hmm. figure out like, what I'm kind of learning is that when you have that product experience and you join a team that doesn't, mm-hmm. it's a totally different language. So, like, did you have that kind of point where you needed to get on the same page or something? Like, you know, talk me through that.
1: Yeah, um, it was interesting because, like, I was working at an advertising agency where I was doing art direction, but also like interactive design. Mm-hmm. So, I had been doing like from Juicy Temples was my first job I ever did like a website design. Okay. So, I've been working on websites for years. I didn't know I had applied at like RGA before for a product design position. Cause I was like, I don't know, you know, I'm just going to apply for this thing. And they're like, sorry, but I think I don't remember the rejection letter. I'm sure I have it somewhere. It was basically like, uh, that's not what product design is. Essentially. (laughs) It was like, you're an idiot. And I was like,
0: Oh damn. (laughs) Yeah. Um,
1: I didn't know any better. Sure. When I got to Etsy, I certainly knew about interactive design and web design. Um, and mobile was sort of like still early stages. This was 2010. Yeah. And so coming in there, I'm, I was like, I'm eternally fearless. Like I always, like, I'll take some stupid chance. You'll learn
0: it if you yeah. have to.
1: And so I go in there and they're just like, I'm like, cool, what do you need done? And the first thing was like, they were launching like a gift card product, essentially like a way to buy gift cards through Etsy. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we need to design like, what does that experience look like? And so like, all right, when someone orders a gift card, like, what do the gift cards look like? And like, when they get the package, like how is it packaged up? What does the actual like physical card look like? What, is the, what are the things that show up on the web look like? Sure. And then there was all these rules because we're using a third party to fulfill the gift cards. And so they had like print requirements They could only do certain packaging. Um, and it wasn't my first time like working within a system quite that large where we had to figure out how all that stuff works. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I went to advertising, we built it, but we just like Cool, we'll just make it because the scale was so much smaller. Yeah. And so coming to Etsy, it's like, yeah, we didn't need to ship these. Like, I think it was US only launch, but then they were like in partnership with Amazon. They were doing all this different stuff. Or maybe we were looking at how Amazon did it. So getting in there, there was like a lot to learn. And then I went to the first like design meeting, and it had the product design team, which I at that point I still didn't really know what product design was. And I remember there was like a bunch of engineers in there and like product managers and like product designers. And they were using all these words that, and that was the first time where I felt like in over my head where I was mm-hmm. like, and I remember we had, uh, it was, uh, I think the room was called Wu-Tang Clams. All the conference rooms <laughs> at Etsy were food and music.
0: Cool.
1: And so there's like this open space and it had like a painted fireplace and this paint by numbers mural and these couches. And there was a TV up the wall. We were all sitting around and, and it was such like a warm environment. That even though like, I didn't really know what everyone was saying and I was a little scared to admit that it was like, I felt comfortable enough to like power through and like, go home and research it and learn a little bit more. Drop and, down the things that you
0: don't know. And yeah. and <laughs> Research as soon as possible.
1: And with anything, you know, the first time you hear about something or learn about something like, I mean, everyone feels a little stupid sometimes, right? It could oh, definitely. be anything. I feel, I feel <laughs> done
0: Consistently, there's a moment every day where I do that.
1: <laughs> Um, yeah. And at Etsy, I sort of did that, but like, I think the more you're in it and, you know, we would have like design crits of like, twice a week and then we would have like product design all hands and we would have a uh, company all hands once a week. And like through that sort of exposure to the tech world, like I learned a ton in like the first month. And I felt like after I made it through that first month, I kind of like, knew what was going on and I very quickly like acclimated to all of the jargon and like sure. tech terms and like what it meant to like build a web product versus a website, like a web product yeah. that's like always being iterated upon that like has like and at Etsy it was complex as we were a two-sided marketplace. so yeah. we had buyers and sellers and they had different needs and they had a different interface and it was a huge learning experience. It was really incredible.
0: um I heard that a lot of designers there were able to push code just live to the site. Were you able were were you doing that? and did you have to like learn you know i'm I I had a a brief stint at my last job where I was getting into command line and learning Gitflow and and all that stuff. And it was so scary.
1: (laughs) It's super scary. And um, so I was doing very minimal like product side design. And so basically it was a small team. So we all jumped in and I designed some interfaces, some of the like shop. Um, I think it was like for like first time, Seller side, like what that onboarding experience, I was like, yeah, I'll just design it. I've been designing websites. So I kind of did a first pass at it and like worked with the team, engineering team to like help build it out. But yeah, I think everyone's first day, I think the thing is like you deploy code and it's to like update the about page with your like picture is like Mm -hmm. sort of the thing. And they had this thing, um, uh, Deployinator, which was through GitHub. And yeah, and I was like, I don't know what any, what is, (laughs) what is any of this? Yeah. And so, you know, Randy and Jay were really cool and they, like, walked me through it. And, like, yeah, your, your first day at Etsy, you, like, deploy code. And that was sort of to, like, get you into that mentality of, like, you know, like, at you know, Facebook, they say, like, whatever, work fast and break things or... something. Everyone's like got some, like, stupid terminology. But at Etsy, it was all about, like, employee empowerment where, like, anyone can deploy live code to the site and it teaches you a level of responsibility. Mm-hmm. So if you break it, then that's, like, you know tens of thousands of dollars per minute that yeah. a company is losing. But accountability
0: like, is big on that. Yeah, and
1: the accountability is great. And, like, Kellen and John alspa and Chad, who later became CEO, who was, like, the CTO at the time, was just, like, all about that. And I think, you know, the, the engineering side, the tech culture at Etsy is, like, I don't know what it's like today, but, like, I still hear from friends that, like, it's, like, best in class. Like, I think the engineers who work there are really talented, and I think Etsy really fosters that sense of, like, the ability to learn and the ability to grow and have responsibility, I think that's the thing. Like we we shelter so many people these days from like taking risks yeah. that, you know, people grow a fear of it. Whereas like you should have a fear, but it should be a healthy fear where, you have that sense of responsibility that you have the confidence to like hit that button and deploy to the site. Yeah, and then at Etsy they had a blameless postmortem, so if something really bad happened. Um, it encouraged people to like say, oh, I did this thing and it caused this because it was blameless. There was no, no one was reprimanded. Uh, it was all about a learning experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like super powerful. I wish more places did those sort of blameless postmortems. It takes a bit of work, but I think that combined with at the end of the year, the, um, the 404 page used to be a three-arm sweater and it had something <laughs> like, oh, a, a stitch has gone awry or there was some phrase in it. And I remember Anda Corey who was like, a early etsy employee who ended up being on the design team with me um she had done an illustration she's super talented she's in berlin now but um yeah she had done this illustration of a 3 arm sweater like someone had made a mistake and at the end of the year we would give out a physical 3 arm sweater to the person who <laughs> broke the site the worst
0: that's so cool and i
1: think that sort of sense of like humor and um warmth just really helped people to like take responsibility for their actions and like just do really great work
0: I really want that sweater now. <laughs> it's they like a rare. They used to have
1: it hanging <laughs> above the person's desk in the office. So I don't know cool. what they do now, but it was part of that Etsy culture. That I was like, I don't think anyone can replicate it. And again, I don't know what it's like today. It certainly changed over the four and a half years that I worked there. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just like a real special place.
0: You eventually started the branding studio there you, it was you and another individual, basically was, was that out of just necessity that you guys needed someone to start focusing on these elements that were, I guess, customer facing, or was it also part of like, I know, I, I, these are the things I really want to do.
1: Yeah, it was a mix. Um, so getting there, there wasn't, again, there wasn't a job description. It was just sort of like, yeah, we need someone to make stuff. And, you know, the first ask was these gift cards and, At the time, the Etsy brand was very, like, organically grown. You know, uh, people who were on the seller education team would just make some stuff because they had to or they would hire Etsy sellers to, like, draw things and create things, which was, like, great. And we continued to do that over the whole time I was at Etsy. Um, But at a certain point, we needed to, like, what is Etsy? um, What does it stand for? And how do we use visual branding to, like, tie in all of the, you know, warm and fuzzy, really positive culture within Etsy and, like, projected outward in a way that it made sense. And so we kicked around it was originally like the design studio because we were just doing like graphic design sure. and then we were doing some like marketing design and eventually it became, I think, global brain studio or something like that. Um, and around that time, um, there was uh, Nicole Licht who was, I think she was on the customer support team, but she was an Etsy seller and illustrator and artist and... Um, Rob Kalen, who was the CEO at the time, was like, oh, like you should have Nicole on the design team. And Randy was like, OK. And so like brought Nicole into the design team. And then I had hired uh, Melissa Deckert, who now Nicole and Melissa have their own studio. Who, they do just the best work. Um, and so Melissa was just out of college. She went to Pratt and she had done some stuff and she had worked. I want to say it was at a like Huffington Post or somewhere. Um, and then so she came on under us and then we hired like a studio manager and eventually it was like, Oh, it's not just like a few, like we're a team. Yeah. Um, and we ended up over the four years grew the team. I think it was like 12 to 16 people at the end just for brand design, which was like, again, it was, it was like more out of a necessity and like, sort of like, Oh, this is the natural evolution of what we need to be doing. It was never because we're like, cool, we're going to start this thing. It's just like, like everything at Etsy at that time, it sort of happened organically and, um, the project sort of reflected our personal feelings of what Etsy should be and then also just kind of everything we'd learn by immersing ourselves within the culture of the company, but also like the sellers and buyers for
0: the for the site. Sure. So you then went on to work at Pepsi, which I'm a i I'm familiar with yeah. now. Um but then you also went on to uh work with Uber yeah. as uh you were on the design marketing or marketing.
1: Yeah, brand marketing brand marketing. Essentially, yeah.
0: Um and I I kind of saw in a few talks that you did that you were very much working with a team that was remote. Yeah. And, and were you still in New York or were you in California? Yeah. So I was the remote person for the most <laughs> part. Um, Uber was, you know,
1: like I think, you know, my first couple of years in New York, including that Etsy experience was like really special. And I think career wise, the time at Uber um, was a huge time of growth for me. And I think there's, you know, throughout the years there's a few jobs that you have. And, um, you know, I had worked at Pepsi And I had learned a lot about like managing global brands and I'd worked at Etsy where I learned about growing teams and like, I was a really terrible manager at Etsy. Like it was my first time managing. I didn't know what it meant and I made a lot of mistakes and like, you know, Nicole and Melissa, if you're listening, I'm sorry, but um, (laughs) you know, I learned a lot coming out of that. And like at Uber was my sort of, all right, I'm going to be the best manager I can possibly be because I wasn't just managing studios and a few people like at Pepsi, I was like managing... Uh, building and managing, like, a large team. So I got to Uber, and the ask was, like, yeah, it's, like, we're looking for a brand manager or, like, a design manager for brand. Like, okay, great. You know, interviewed, flew out to San Francisco. Um, and some of the questions were, like, oh, like, if you had to rebrand Uber, what would you do? And I'm, like, that's, like, a really big question
0: yeah, for it's like... Yeah, so loaded. Yeah, for, like,
1: an interview. We're basically so, just looking
0: to, like, exile you immediately. Yeah. <laughs> and so we chatted, yeah, like... say I, something wrong? Yeah,
1: very, like, openly about some ideas, but sure. I... I would never put myself in was like, well, this is what you do. That's that's ridiculous. And at the time, Uber was like the unicorn company, like the fastest growing company in the history of the world. Um, The highest valued private company. It was just like, and that's why I was so excited to work. I'm like, oh, well, they're like changing uh, employment and they're like changing the way that like cities work and they're doing that. It was just incredible. And living in New York, I saw how I couldn't get a cab to Brooklyn from Lower East Side. And then all of a sudden Uber came along and it was like, safer Super and like easy. huge uber fan yeah and so i was under the impression that i was going to be working on like brand design which is the stuff that i had been doing at pepsico which was like building brand design systems and brand books and visual identities so that at pepsi for instance you know it's in 200 countries and uh we had different design studios like in mexico city mm-hmm. and in, in china and all over the place where they had to have consistent design practices so we would build you know, brand standards manuals. And I did it a little bit at Etsy. And certainly when I was working at Juicy Temples, we built um, visual identity books. And so at Uber, I thought that was sort of the ask. And so we went through this interview process and I interviewed with Andrew Crow at the time, who was the head of design, who's like amazing. Yeah, and so they're like, congratulations, you got the job. I'm like, great. (laughs) And then I went in for my first day of work and I lived in San Francisco for the first month that I worked there. And I flew out to San Francisco and the whole team had flown in. And so I learned at that point that I was managing the, at the time it was called like regional design or something like that. And I was like, okay, sure. And um, the asked,
0: are changing. Yeah. I was like, okay, regional
1: <laughs> design. And then they gave me a choice. Like, cool. You can move to San Francisco and be the head of global design, or you can stay in Europe and be the head of regional design. And I was like, well, I don't want to move to San Francisco. So yeah, I'll be the head of regional design. Like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, it's fine, you know? And so I went over there and I met people and we had designers in DC and New York and LA and Chicago. And I think they were looking to hire people in like Texas and Mexico City. And my role was like the Americas. So like North America, Central America, Mm -hmm. Latin America. And so I had designers from all over, flew into San Francisco for the week to like learn the new brand, which apparently had already been being worked on. Sure. So the whole time I was interviewing, I was like, oh, I'm going to like rebrand Uber and it's going to be like the best portfolio piece ever. Then I get there like,
0: yeah, the rebrand's pretty much done. Do it. <laughs> and now you're
1: like the regional design manager.
0: Now you have to own and guard this.
1: And um, Which isn't a bad place to be, but it was just, it was kind of confusing. And so totally. literally my first day I pulled aside Brian McMullen, who's one of the guys who hired me. And I was like, Brian, can you draw the design work for me? Because I don't know what's happening right now. And it was a time of like real fear for me because I had like taken a leap and I had accepted this job and I looked at it as like a big step forward to learn. And I just, I'm like, who am I? who even is my team? What do I do? Yeah. And I was super scared that like first week. But at the end of it, I had gotten to know the team that I would be managing and they were just like the most incredible people and they were all kind of in it together. And so like I continued to work in San Francisco for the next like three weeks and learned the ins and outs and went to all the meetings. And you know, we're sitting in meetings with Travis Kalanick and I got to really understand how Uber functioned and slowly understood the role of my team. Um, and as soon as I did that, there was like a massive reorg and like everything shifted again. And that was basically how it worked for the first like three months I was at Uber, like a reorg every like two or three weeks where eventually I ended up being like, we we labeled the team brand marketing so it was underneath the brand team so we were basically taking the brand standards applying them and then feeding them back into the brand team to like re-systemize like things that just didn't work mm. and then that's where the remote aspect came from is that we had designers who were hired into each city because at the time uber wasn't a centralized company basically every gm in each city kind of ran their own like mini corporation and they could do whatever they want to make sure that Uber was successful in that city. So we were sort of beholden to what they needed. And so there was a lot of like promotional material. like We did like new writer discount cards and flyers and just like, you know, like window decals, just stuff that is really important because there's a lot of it. And that's like the first thing a lot of people at the time as Uber was growing, were like seeing, Um, but it was also like not fulfilling. um, I don't think it was like very creative work. Um, so I leaned really heavily into management, um, and it was even more difficult because like it was a completely remote team. So I had my employees and I think I doubled the size of the team over my like two years that I was there, but yeah, they were everywhere. Um, so I managed people in, um, originally I didn't manage San Francisco, but I managed, uh, Los Angeles, uh, New York, DC, Chicago, I think that was it, and then eventually I went on to manage like all of San Francisco, and then also um, the Amsterdam and London offices, and yeah. And So that's my sick. my days were really long. I would get up really early in the morning to take meetings uh, in Europe, and I would stay really late to take meetings for our uh, Delhi office in India.
0: Yeah, that's that's nuts. Um, so working with like a, a team that's you know f- very much, I guess flexible, agile, you know, like a bunch of words come to mind um, and having to be so spread out, right. Cause you're, you have all these different regions that you're now kind of managing. Um, what, you know, like, what are some of the ways that you were working? You know, I, I think the, what I'm trying to get at is like, what products in a sense were you using or what ways of, of creating, you know, a, a good culture to critique work? Like what were some of the things that you were leveraging to kind of make sure that it felt like you were there?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was tough. And I think like it helped that I was also remote in a way, right? Like, yeah, I, I was the leader of the team, but I was in New York and I had a team in New York, but like the company was in San Francisco for the most part. Um, so also at that time, like I was flying to San Francisco every month for like a week. And then, um, as we evolved the team into not just being like promo materials, we ended up being like the in-house agency. So we were doing brand marketing, like advertising campaigns and stuff like that for every city. So we were doing like shoots in Montreal and like getting, you know, like going and photographing drivers in different cities and like building all of these assets, which was like really amazing. Right. Like I think the chaos of Uber uh reordering so much actually was like an opportunity for me to like become a leader and like redefine what that team did. And sure. it, it worked out amazing. And you know, I think by the end it wasn't quite what I wanted it to be, but we did a really good job getting it to a place where I think everyone was really excited to do the work but yeah i mean coming back to it one i was gifted with like an amazing group of people to start with and i think they had already done a good job um, between like uh, we used HipChat at the time and then later you chat our own internal mm-hmm. chat system but through that plus uh video conferencing plus in-person like summits they had already established like a really close relationship with everyone around the globe. And so, um, you know, there was designers in Amsterdam and South Africa and, and London who were like really close friends with the designers in San Francisco and New York. And so just coming in, that helped me a ton that they already had like a really positive relationship, working relationship with each other. Um, and I think if I didn't have that like right group and chemistry of people, I would have failed immediately. Sure. So a lot of that is just out of my hands. It's nothing I did. Um, they just happened to have, almost by mistake, hired just like a really great group of individuals. So, so they got
0: it right the first time, <laughs> but it was like, in a way.
1: There wasn't one hiring manager, like the GMs had hired them into their specific cities and it was just mm-hmm. by chance and it really worked out. And I think with that as the baseline, I instituted, um, you know, critiques twice a week and we basically upload work to Basecamp Mm -hmm. and we would try to find some neutral time. It was like 8:30 a.m. for San Francisco, but it was like 9 p.m. for Dell. Like we did our best that like, all right, with a global team, how do we find a couple times that work? And then we use Basecamp to catalog all of the work and notes. So that way we could critique everything and if anyone missed it, they can come back and like leave a comment and things like that. So I think those weekly critiques were really great. Um, we would just have like housekeeping meetings where we would just like, hey, this is what's going on. And like at that time, Uber was starting, there was like a lot of friction beginning at Uber sure. around like bad PR. And it was my opportunity as a manager to be like, how is everyone doing? Um, I know there's all this noise out there. You heard this bad thing. Like, how can I help you? Like, do you have any questions? Do you
0: feel any kind of type of way right now? Basically? Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> And so a lot of that was just me trying to be empathetic and be a good leader, but just also like I, I deeply cared about my employees and they deeply cared about each other. And thankfully a lot of the answers were like, yeah, we hear all this stuff, but thankfully like our team is really great. We don't feel that. And like, that wasn't always the case, but I, I felt very fortunate that that was sort of a signal that I was doing something right Um, when they were just like, yeah, like we're great.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The culture on the team can kind of outweigh. And I've definitely experienced that where, you know, you may hear something about the company that you work for and it's definitely not in good taste or whatever, but the culture that your team practices differs from that. Doesn't I align with that kind of thinking or that? And it makes you feel really good as an individual where you're just like proud to not be a part of that, Yeah, which I think, you know, I'm sure was kind of the case.
1: And I think also, like, to be fair to Uber, like, I think a lot of the stuff was overblown. And, like, there was some very legitimate stuff that happened that, like, Mm -hmm. needed to be addressed. And um, I think they've done a good job of addressing it. But some of the stuff was just, like, the delete Uber thing. um, And these opinions are of my own and not a representation of Uber. (laughs) But, like, that was just, it was, like, a, a handful of misunderstandings that just, like, blew up. Like, Josh, who was the GM of New York at the time, was like, yeah, well, like, We want people to be able to get from the airport during these protests. Um, And it was, there was a taxi strike and he waited till the taxi strike ended and then like took off Surge. It didn't like get free rides, just took off Surge. And then someone's like, oh, they turned Surge off to like break the strike. And that turned into something. It was just like a bunch of misinformation. And we've seen like since then, we've had the 2016 election and now 2018 is like this crazy firestorm of like fake news and mistruths and that delete Uber thing was the first time it like had directly affected me where it was just like a bunch of stuff that just wasn't real, Mm -hmm. like really harmed like the company and like the people who worked there who were doing good work were just like, what is going on? Um, And that was like a really tough thing. So to Uber's credit, not all of it was like, you know, deeply painful attributed to the company, though some of it was, but again, thankfully like my team made it through that. Um, So yeah, I think like talking a bunch, like, you know, I always had weekly one-on-ones with every employee, no matter where they were in the world. Um, You know, we tried our best to have open dialogue. I traveled to a lot of the different offices, so I got FaceTime in. Um, And Uber was really great about having the budget for that sort of stuff. That's cool. And then between Basecamp, you know, Slack slash HipChat, whatever. Yeah, and email and everything. We just had a really good cadence. And then eventually we would have in-person meetings where we would all fly into a city and we would take some time to learn and... I allocated a certain amount of budget to um, for people to like go to conferences and for people to like have team outings. Even if I wasn't in the city, like yeah, go go to a museum or go, go to, yeah, go do something together. Yeah. And I think that really like built the camaraderie of of the team. Um, so I don't think it was a specific tool. It was just like part my management philosophy and then part like how do we make the world smaller through technology and. A lot of that was effort on my end, having to work like 12 hours a day. But for me, that that was worth the investment in order to, you know, create a path forward to all of these like younger, talented, amazing individuals to like be able to continue to grow and learn and advance within the company. And if they had to leave, like find a really great job and help them find a job that Mm -hmm. they could be really proud to work at.
0: So you're the director of brand now at BuzzFeed. Yeah. What's your day to day like?
1: Um, it's interesting. It's really different today than it was, I think my first like two months there, which is like kind of a pattern in all my jobs. <laughs> but yeah, my day to day is all over the place. So I spent a lot of time managing design for our like stable of lifestyle brands. Mm-hmm. So we've got Buzzfeed media brands and that's, Everything from Tasty, which is like our, it's like the world's largest cooking network.
0: Yep. Very familiar. <laughs> Everyone loves Tasty.
1: Um, to Nifty, which is like home decor and improvement. We've got As Is, which is health and beauty through a um, body positivity lens. That's
0: like one of the newer ones that launched. Yeah, right? As Is
1: is new. its We had a bunch of different beauty brands that we like brought together under one umbrella. And then uh, Goodful, which is our newest brand that we just launched, which is like about health and wellness. So like mindfulness and meditation and... Not necessarily like eating healthy, but like eating right for your body. Not necessarily about exercise, but about like physical well-being. Mm-hmm. And we just launched that with a partnership also with Macy's, where we did like a line of home goods that like uh support that mentality of the brand. Um but we've got a lot of stuff. Bring me, which is our travel brand. There's a bunch of stuff. So over the course of the past year, we've slowly been like tackling each of these and creating a brand identity and rebranding them and creating brand guidelines and trying to teach the company about like what it means to be consistent visually with a brand, which is like, it's a 12 year old company, but it's very young in the way that it works. And the employees, a lot of them, um, a lot of us, I should say, not them, um, it's like their first job and they've been there for a long time. or so their first job ever. And they're just learning how stuff works. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it is like design education and like teaching people on like, not only how to work with designers, like, cool, you need something we're here to help you. Here's how we can like, make sure that at the end, like we both get the most out of the relationship to, uh, like what is a brand really, you know? And like, why is it important to make things look consistent over time? And so there's a lot of education. Um, and then there's like just a ton of design. And so my day to day is like managing design of those brands and like reviewing work and managing my designers, um, both like from a prof- professional standpoint, but also like a design management standpoint. Um, I work under the commerce team, which is, um, a newer team within Buzzfeed. It's basically how Buzzfeed, uh, it's like a new revenue stream. So we make physical products, we do licensing, we do affiliate sales, mm-hmm. Um, there's all sorts of different stuff we do. But within that, there's a subset called innovation. Jake Bronstein heads that up and he and I work super closely together to just come up with ideas for other companies. So sometimes we innovate for BuzzFeed where we'll invent something like the Tasty One Top. Yeah. Um, other times, you know, outside companies will hire us to solve a problem for them. And we do these BuzzFeed design sprints. And they're not, they're not like the Google sprints. It's more like, Someone comes with an open-ended brief. We go into a room, and based on the brief, we'll bring in, like, 60 people of all sorts of disciplines. So there'll be... You said 60. 60, yeah. So there'll be industrial designers, and there'll be illustrators, and there'll be copywriters, and there'll be interior design. Depending on what the ask is, we'll have, on day one, this giant group of people, and we'll brainstorm. At the end of day one, we'll have, like, a bunch of ideas, and we cull it down to a few ideas, Day two, we like test the ideas. And then by day three, it's like executing against them. And so by day three, we've cut loose a lot of the people It's like, all right, well, we don't need an industrial designer for this because it's gonna be a marketing thing or we don't need an interior designer because it's gonna be on the internet only or whatever. And so the sprints are like, it's basically, we do the work that an ad agency does in six months and we do it in five days, essentially.
0: Is is bringing um, that amount of people into the room at once, is that, to have as many ideas as possible, but also to f- kind of remedy that no one feels left out in a sense, or is no. it just to kind of, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, for one, it's like, yeah, as many ideas as possible, but more like, because the brief is open-ended, we don't know what we need. Mm-hmm. So we bring everything in. Sure. Um. So that if, say we get really excited about, like we, we did, we did a lot of work for Scott's recently. And so one of the big things that's like come to fruition is this brand called Lunarly, which is basically a, plant-based subscription service geared towards millennials. Um, it's about like mindfulness, but it also has like this kind of witchcraft lean to it. Yeah. And we glean that off of um, our Buzzfeed data that we we can see that, you know, Scott's, the question to Scott's was, all right, like millennials, for lack of a better term, like they like plants, but people are buying plants because they're scared they're going to kill them. Yeah. Like how do we talk to millennials and and how do we get them interested in plants and see that it's not such a scary thing. That's sort of like the brief. And coming out of it, we pitched a ton of ideas, but the winning idea that has since gone into production is this thing called Lunarly. And it basically, you like sign up and it's got this like kind of, you know, lunar cycles, like plants that go with the lunar cycles and you get uh, crystals and like candles to burn and sage and different things like that. So it's sort of like this like mindfulness wellness through this sphere of like uh, plants and, I say witchcraft and it sounds so silly, but
0: it's kind of like this
1: like As witchy, soon as you bring
0: crystals into it, yeah. I think of like all this holistic healing yeah, yeah, yeah. and things like that. So. Um,
1: but it's really great. And you subscribe and you get a plant every month. And along with the plant, you get, uh, you have this intention guide where you can like set your intentions. And through that, you get different like crystals and incense and it changes every month and you get different things. And mm-hmm. it's been a great success for Scotts and they we've continued to work with them on other projects. And so that's like kind of a sprint. And at, at the end of day five, they get, everything. So we have branding, we have a, um, a logistics plan. We have like all of the numbers we have, you know, marketing and like how we can sell it through Buzzfeed and what that looks like and what a media buy looks like. And here's where you source all the things. Like we literally give them everything that they need. And we ask the question, like you can take this and do it yourself. You can take this and we can help you fulfill it. Or you, we can continue to work with you and like run it for you. Mm. Um, and with Lunarly, we've continued to run it for them and it's been great. And we've done that with tons of other brands like Home Depot and uh, Dunkin' Donuts and Diageo who own everyone's favorite booze. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah just like lots of, lots of different companies come to us. And the sprints for me are probably the most fulfilling yeah. thing at Buzzfeed because it's like, it's we have clients but it's like they're in the room with us and the decision making is so quick that there's not too much time to be like, well, I don't know if this is like I don't really like blue. Yeah. Like, we're like, "Cool, here's the data. This is what it says we should do. This is what we've designed. Here are like three options." We're like, "Option 1." Like, "Great." Yeah. And we we ship it. And how, it's How how
0: important is that um, I I have learned, you know, that the more time you have, the more almost the further away you can drift from from your yeah. original idea. How important and in and, uh, and some way satisfying is it to have this limited window of time to get these things done?
1: So I don't know if I'm just like a masochist crazy person, <laughs> but I work really well when it's just like, here's essentially an impossible task. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I like stepping into that challenge and like making it really great. But I think like those limited time periods, I think we probably do it a little bit more compressed than is healthy for everyone. <laughs> sure. But in the long run, I think there's a lot of value to it. It's like, you know, we all work with clients, like whether you work in advertising or you work in-house, like everyone is your client in-house. Yeah. Like, and when I first went in-house, I'm like, yeah, this is going to be great. I don't have clients. And it's like, oh no, everyone Every, yeah. is a client and they're not
0: paying. I'm like learning. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I've had to learn that like very recently in the last like year that like, they're not like you go in. They're like, oh yeah, these are just guys in other departments. We'll just help them out, whatever yeah. people. And then um, you start realizing that, like, realizing that, like, the, the other departments in within the company, like, you have to build them still. Yeah. And you're like, oh wait, so like you pay me still? Okay, you're a client now. <laughs> like, sort of. That's, yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. It's it's really interesting, but you know, and the more time you have, like, it's like okay, cool. We're gonna we're gonna take this back to our team and get back to you. Is like the worst phrase ever yeah. because I know, like, I don't know who's on the team. And like, you know, at least in the sprints, like the key decision makers are there and we can like talk to them, we can sell to them for lack yeah. of a better term and we can help convince them like, yeah, this is the right solution and here's
0: why. Um, well, it's, not, it's almost like it's uh, when the, the decision makers are there, like when you have all those people in the room and you're working with them, it doesn't become selling. It's like we're, we want to work towards the same yeah. goal and it's like telling that story. It's like how we get there can be, really, uh, impact someone's decision. And if they understand that and see that going on.
1: Absolutely. And so like, I mean, way back since my juicy days, it's like the goal is like always work with the decision maker. And Mm -hmm. I think like Paula share like talks about that a lot, but yeah. And like, so often it's just not possible for a lot of us, even in like big companies like Buzzfeed or Pepsi or Uber, like Uber was pretty good about it, but like most other places like you don't get in the room with like the final person. So it's like, all right, you talk to like a marketing manager, you talk to the head of whatever you talk to the CMO who needs to talk to this other person. And, um, yeah, having the person in the room and like, it's not like gun to your head make a decision, but it's like, Hey, you know, like, here's what we think. Yeah. We got to make a call in 30 minutes, like sit on it and let us know. And like <laughs> You know, that's when I think really good leaders can, They'll, they'll make a decision, they'll put their reputation or taste or whatever on the line. Like, this is the thing we're going to do. And, you know, the big thing about me, like, I don't, I don't care about becoming like, uh, necessarily becoming like a chief creative officer. Like, titles don't really mean anything to me. Like, salary's nice, but that's not my driving force. Um, I think really like that sphere of influence. And, you know, I feel really comfortable being the person to be like, this is what we're going to do. Um, and you know, like, and I'm not always right and I mess things up like everyone does, but I think that and having that sphere of influence and being able to like be that decision maker, I think is really valuable to me as like a creative leader. And like, I wouldn't even call myself a designer anymore Mm -hmm. necessarily. Yeah. Where it's just like, I want more of that, which is why I think I keep like, cool, I'm going to be like a design manager or I'm going to be an art director and then a manager and then a design manager, then a senior design manager, then a, you know, a creative director and then like. Uh, director of brand and VP of design, like whatever it may be, it's not necessarily because I'm like a ladder climber. I don't, the other stuff really doesn't matter to me, but like being entrusted to make that decision and for maybe for better or worse, but I have the confidence in myself to like make that call. And so that's something that drives me from like a, a creative standpoint, but like working with other people who like have that ability and are ready to do the thing, I think just makes everyone's life easier. And yeah, I mean, You'll bomb sometimes, but,
0: but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
1: it's like risk and reward, right? Like, I think we all have to... Uh, I don't know, like uh If you don't take the chance, then... If you play everything safe, then, like, nothing is valuable
0: in the end. So not only in career and professional world, but, like, outside. Just kind of simplifying that idea down to its most human... Like, I go to go get a jacket or something like that. And I'll send a picture to my mom. and be like, hey, what do you think about this jacket? <laughs> and I'll be like, ah, oh. I'll like hesitate, won't get it. Yeah. And then like a day, two days, hours later, I'm like, I should have gotten that jacket. And sure. like that experience, I kind of just have learned. I think now that I'm older, I'm, I'm starting to learn and actually react to those thoughts where I'm like, I can't do that anymore. Not And, and professionally, that's like, yeah. if you don't put yourself out there and try to at least attempt whatever the task is, you can for me personally, the regret is worse to not trying.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and one of it is like, in a professional standpoint, it's like that mutual sort of thing, right? When you have that key decision maker, and you're the creative decision maker, and they're the business decision maker, and you guys understand each other, guys or girls, excuse me, mm-hmm. like there's like inherent value in that relationship um, that I think is like really hard to beat. So it's not necessarily about me having the power. So it's like. Right, like having a mutual respect and understanding for people's expertise and sometimes it's hard because you have socio uh, economic things that or demographics that maybe like there's not enough like women creative directors like mm-hmm. there's just not and it's bullshit. and so like aiga is doing like the double or nothing thing to and i'm working with like built by girls and all these other female leadership initiatives because like yeah like there should be way more like why aren't there more women creative directors. Even at the table. Yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. it's so stupid. But like having that, having those people be lifted up and like respected, um, you know, I certainly enjoy it. I think it's true for anyone, but like that relationship is really powerful. And so it's not just about like owning the decision yourself, but it's about having that uh, respect with the other key decision maker. And so certainly in what you said about the jacket, um, <laughs> I think it's true. Like that applies for me to like photography, like I I do a very specific type of photography, like street photography, Mm -hmm. which is entirely candid, entirely spontaneous. Like I don't know the people I'm taking photos of. And, um, you know, a lot of people ask like, oh, you know, are you, are you scared like that? You're going to take a photo and they're going to be upset with you. I'm like, yeah. Or I don't take the photo and I think about it for the next three days. Yeah. I wish I would have taken that photo. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the same with the jacket. Like you can buy the jacket and maybe you end up hating it and you can, Donate it, maybe you take a loss, maybe you sell it on eBay sure. or whatever. But if you don't buy it, then you sit there and like I think that feeling of like, oh God, like if I, I wish I had bought that jacket and now it's sold out. Mm-hmm. I very much feel that way about like lots of things. It's not necessarily FOMO, but it's just like learning to trust yourself a little bit. Yeah. I, I
0: think it's more I I it's FOMO has come around and that's like the easy way to label it. But I I, mm-hmm. I do really believe that it's learning about yourself and really kind of just like understanding that. Yeah. And and reacting to it in a way that makes yeah, sense. absolutely
1: um yeah photography is like for me it's like the easiest thing to point to because that's I get like three questions it's like what camera do you use yeah. like how do you edit your photos mm-hmm. and then like how do you take pictures of people without them getting mad at you and it's like the last part of that question I don't I'm not worried about them getting mad at me mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm worried about me being mad that I didn't take the photo And most of the time, people are are pretty chill. Like, you gotta learn to read a scene, and I don't, I try not to put myself in danger. Um, But for the most part, like, the worst that's gonna happen is someone's gonna yell at you. Yeah. Um, And certainly, like, it's exploitative as a street photographer. I'm like taking photos of people without their permission. But for the most part, I'd like to think I'm doing, like, no harm. I'm not, hopefully, I'm not, like, getting someone deported or sure I, I don't know what but um,
0: you're not looking to capture like any embarrassing no moments or, or... I just
1: want to you know I just want to like frame a beautiful moment because mm. they're all around us and everyone's looking at their phones these days and there's something special about like paying attention and just seeing like all of this amazing stuff
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of WellFed. This podcast is produced by me, John Sorrentino, out in Jersey City, New Jersey, and made possible by all the amazing people that agree to be my guests on this thing. Music is also provided by my friend Kevin Bendis out in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. If you have any suggestions or ideas for people that you'd like to hear from, go ahead and DM them to me on Instagram at wellfed.us. If you like listening, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or you can also go to the website, wellfed.us, for more episodes. Again, thank you so much for listening. Bye!